0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Clinical Informatics Go Live podcast. I'm your co-host today, Victor Garcia, a first-year clinical informatics fellow at Stony Brook, here with Brian McConomy.
1: Hey, I am also a first-year clinical informatics fellow. I am at Regan Streep here in Indianapolis, Indiana.
0: And today we have a conversation led by Brian on health information exchanges and how the Indiana HIE played a role during the COVID response for Indiana's State Department of Health. First, though, we'd like to give our co participants, Doctors Jessica Ruff and Eugene Lucas, a chance to introduce themselves.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Jessica Ruff, and I am also a first year fellow at uh, Metro Health in Cleveland,
3: Ohio. And, uh, my name is Eugene Lucas. I'm a uh, first year Clinical Informatics Fellow at New York Presbyterian uh, Columbia University.
0: Awesome. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so, Jessica, how has COVID been out in Metro Health for you guys? Uh,
2: so I would say that, you know, as a, as a state, we um, really had some great leadership um, with um, Governor DeWine and our, I forget what she is. I think she's the director of health. Um, and they really, you know, followed the science and got things shut down pretty early. And so we didn't even come close to using any of our surges, any of our surge plans um, or anything like that. And people really stayed home and Um, They did a good job flattening the curve. So not nearly as bad as we expected. So it's been good.
0: Did you guys have to do any type of um, restructuring of the hospital with wards and extra staffing?
2: So we did change a little bit of that. Um, A lot of our teams went to like a week on a week off. um, And they sort of stayed away from each other so that if one team was sick, then you know, the other team didn't get sick. Um, and we did have um, alternative plans for uh, all faculty members um, and residents. So there was a, there was a plan, but we didn't have to use any of that. Um, oh wow, that's fantastic. well. We 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 used we made it, We had a COVID unit and we had a COVID rehab unit, but we didn't use any of our like. There were no, you know, urologists working in our ER or anything like that.
0: So, Gene, how does that compare to how you guys were doing in Columbia? Uh,
3: so yeah, we um. I'm not sure the exact dates of when we started, uh, like schools closed, I think in kind of mid middle of March. And that was right around the same time that our clinic. Uh, so I, I'm an I work as an internist, one of our outpatient clinics. So, uh, we closed down all of the sites around mid March and then converted everything to just uh, telemedicine visits. Um, and then with regard to like the hospital census, I think we expanded it by, uh, Almost a full like hundred percent in some cases. I think the ICU beds we went from like two hundred to four hundred, and and for the inpatient census, I think we went from six hundred to about a thousand. So like most of the ORs were converted into ICU rooms. Um, We were using some of the uh, more public spaces that were converted into hospitals. and with regard to staffing there were shortages really like across the board um so uh they were like pretty much any fellow in a uh like any fellow at uh, new york presbyterian was kind of asked if they could uh volunteer to be to participate in like as an inpatient in inpatient uh medicine for uh, it wasn't really a set amount of time but um I almost looked at this as like a kind of like a draft. Uh, so you were kind of volunteering if you felt comfortable to to do that. And uh, so I I volunteered, but um, fortunately, uh, I mean, they were able to kind of uh, increase providers from various locations, and I never had to be called in to do inpatient uh, inpatient work. But um, the uh, there was still enough work to be done at the clinic where uh, I was helping out a lot with um, adding more clinic time. So. Uh, at baseline prior to COVID, I was doing like two two half day clinic sessions per week. And then for about six weeks when COVID was like the heaviest in New York, I was doing about five per week.
0: Um, oh, wow. And telehealth.
3: In, in telehealth. Yeah. So, hmm. I mean, we had to really ramp up the whole the telemedicine. I mean, th- just our whole workflow process wasn't, there was nothing in place previously. So we tried to put that, uh, we put together like COVID related guides. I mean, we were Trying to keep track with all the New York, uh, all the updated um, guidelines that were coming out, uh, to the extent that you could produce guidelines, mm-hmm. um, we benefited a lot from New York State Department of Health. They were posting YouTube videos every week with uh, updates, um, giving census numbers and such. So uh, that was really helpful for the int- internal medicine providers. And then uh, the other element that factored in here is we had like dermatology residents and attendings who were volunteering to work in the outpatient setting as medicine providers. So they were helping. Oh, that's us cool. With- yeah. So it was, it was, you know, really nice. Everyone was like very generous with their time and doing whatever they could to kind of help with the, the patient volume. So, uh, it was a, definitely, a, uh, you know, takes a village th- sort of thing, but, um, yeah, thankfully, you know, we're at least the first peak, uh, we kind of um, were able to get through it without, uh, overflowing our, our hospital census.
1: I think it's interesting how, you know, when you think about when you double the capacity, you have to think about with the EHR and how you create, how you start to name where these people are. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then even if you create it and you can build it out in the EHR, then it kind of comes down to, you know, kind of as what Gene was saying, was the staffing of it. And, you know, you can have as many beds as you want, but if you don't have the staff to work it, then it's it's not as, as helpful. But... You know, it's true. definitely if, interesting to see, you know, how much uh, work and leadership it took to put all these moving pieces together to try to build all this up.
0: Uh, Brian, I've been thinking about you. Um, my uh, girlfriend had gotten a vacuum cleaner for for graduation from her mom. That
1: is that is and, very sweet I'm sure everybody everybody, everybody probably everybody, everybody <laughs> probably does not know that my kids are obsessed with vacuum cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can tell you if whatever brand it was, I'm sure they would recognize it. Um, I didn't realize how many videos there are on YouTube of vacuum cleaners. Uh, but that's, that's <laughs> the reality of life now as a kid. You can get on YouTube and find anything. So, but yeah, they, they well, do love the vacuum cleaners. Well, I, I have to ask, so what brand was it?
0: So it is a shark <laughs> duo vacuum yeah. cleaner and that's this a, thing that's a is, very
1: it's a popular one in our house uh you know so it is and,
0: amazing and, it like i thought carpets were cleaned and then yeah she vacuumed this thing and i saw the trap and i was like oh my gosh i yeah. understand why his kids like vacuum cleaners
1: yeah they uh they're definitely big fans of the shark duo uh whenever we go <laughs> to costco they want to they definitely want to check that one out uh, and then they want to ask me if I want to buy it. And I'm like, no, we already have a shark. And we also have like four other vacuums. We're good. So Are your you rods, guys like, have spotless? The,
0: uh... Oh, no, you would think that,
1: but they don't actually really want to go. It's it's only when they they feel it's convenient to vacuum. And then they're kind of, it's a little spotty. So uh, yeah, you, you would think that it, it would be spotless, but uh, it's not quite. But, uh, you know, they're learning. Well, I'm trying to get them to, to be a little bit better. Uh, although they do a pretty good job on the, the back porch. So that's that area is pretty frequently clean. Yeah, so it's that's their strange uh, obsession.
2: I, I got to say I'm a big fan of the D-Bot. It's really nice. You just hit the button and you come home and everything is clean. It's yeah, so, so my what? children
1: really, really, really want uh, a, a robot vacuum. And yes. I am like absolutely not because you break everything wait wait really? it's a robot vacuum like the the Roombas you know so it, yeah. but they can be like depending on which model it's like three to five hundred dollars and I'm like you kids yeah are I not- think I
2: got mine on Amazon Prime Day so it was less than 200 but that's a good is- that's
1: a good deal it does it work key. on carpet
2: it does works on carpet works on hardwood um it's it's really nice yeah and I have is a it- small apartment it's just me and my roommate so we have a two-bedroom apartment in downtown Cleveland, and. Uh, you know, I just I, you, I turn it on before I leave in the morning when a are both gone, and then I come home and it's it's clean.
3: So how does it do with the edges? Is I because I feel like this a round vacuum would struggle with that.
2: Yeah. So the volumes. brushes go out just a little past um, the uh, d- just past the actual you know robot, so it can get to the edges pretty well. I, mean, I think the hardest part is like you know underneath the uh, the kitchen cabinets is probably where sometimes you gotta sweep up a little bit more, but otherwise uh, it, it does really good.
1: You know, I'm glad to know you guys are making me feel better. That it's just not my kids that like vacuums because obviously there's <laughs> there seems to be a shared interest. So it's I guess it's not really that weird. That's at
2: um, least among
3: informatics fellows and their children. Yeah, that's <laughs> our goal.
2: I mean, I don't have any children. I just like a clean house, and I don't want to do the work. <laughs> i <It's> just lazy.
1: <laughs> no, oh, it, you're just it, it's not laziness. You're just trying to automate.
2: Yeah, you're simplifying, exactly.
1: streamlining.
2: Exactly. There
1: you go. All right, then let's cut to our interview with Brian, who's speaking with some of the leaders of
0: Regenstrief and the Indiana Health uh, Information Exchange.
1: Welcome to this podcast where we are going to be discussing uh, COVID-19 and Health Information Exchange's response to the COVID-19 crisis here specifically in Indiana. My name is Brian Economy. I'm a first-year clinical informatics fellow at Regenstrief Institute. My background is in internal medicine, and I'm really excited to have Brian Dixon, who is one of our uh, research scientists at Regan-Street Institute, he's the Director of Public Health Informatics here at Regan-Street Institute. He's also an Associate Professor at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health. From Indiana Health Information Exchange, I also have Becky Lern, who started out as a registered nurse. She has worked at IHI since 2005, and she is currently the Vice President of Client Experience. She has been very influential in the coordination of resources and helping with the COVID-19 response. And also from Indiana Health Information Exchange, which we also call IHI, is Drew Richardson, and he has worked there since 2014, and he currently holds the role of Vice President for Business Development. So he is leading IHI's sales and project management teams and has been working with Becky uh, very closely in IHI's COVID response. So in getting the timeline, I wanted to start off and kind of just talk, you know, here in Indiana, you know, our governor declared a public health emergency on March 6th, and that's when we had our first case. Obviously, it was a little different around the country. You know, the first case found in Washington was January 21st, and they had their first death late in February. Uh, New York had their first case on March 1st. And then by toward the end of March, Indiana already saw that they had over 1,000 cases. New York had over 52,000 cases, and and Washington was around 5,000 cases. And now around the time here, uh, as when we're recording this podcast here in April, Indiana is at about 12,000 cases along with Washington. New York is at 253,000 cases, and even worldwide, there's about 2.5 million cases. So I think that sets the stage nicely for our discussion here. And I think I wanted to start off and, and talk with Becky and Drew talking about iHi. And when did you guys start your response? for COVID-19 and how did you get involved with the Indiana State Department of Health?
4: I'll start and then I'll pitch it to Drew. So initially we started uh, just, gosh, it was the very last uh, end of that first week of March, I think around the 5th, that we received um, some information from our pals at Regan Street, who also we partner with uh, regarding a tool that we both utilize that Regan Street created that we operationalize at IHI, and that's the Notifiable Condition Detector. So that is a tool that does electronic lab reporting, case reporting back to the Marion County Public Health Department and the State Department of Health. And they count on us to monitor all those inbound lab feeds coming into our health information exchange to report out lab conditions that they monitor. So we quickly, around the 5th, noted that there were loint codes associated with COVID, and we partnered with Regenstrief to make sure we were adding in the correct codes to monitor. So that was one of the very first things we did was, let's get ahead of this. We know that the hospitals are going to start to do testing. We knew others are going to start to do testing. So even before they do, let's make sure that we're set up to report those on correctly. And that was the very first thing we did. But quickly, our, our relationship with ISDH kind of changed because we do a lot with ISDH. But as far as a big recipient of a lot of our data for public health surveillance, we took a turn. And that's where I'll turn it over to Drew. They came to us with some requests for data.
5: Thanks, Becky. One of the, the biggest changes for us was to be able to provide uh, event notifications or ADT alerts as well as provide additional clinical information, which we call our clinical value report. And so there was a a defined population that looked at both COVID and ILI, or influenza-like illness from a defined population And IHI was able to support ISDH, Family and Social Services Administration, the FSSA, as well as additional uh, state entities, by providing this data on a daily basis and providing updates on this patient population. And and so from our standpoint, typically that's a couple weeks, two, three, four week type of process to onboard, go through the UAT process, gather uh, information and files, and our team turned that around in in under 48 hours. So we're able to produce information that was very helpful to not only the state for their actual clinical response, but was also utilized from Regenstrief and other entities to help build some modeling and dashboards that I think have been very helpful, uh, not only from like a PPE type of utilization, but also looking at modeling just as it relates to, you know, trends of scoping How much COVID is going to to hit the the number of hospitalizations, utilization, deaths? They looked at a whole bunch of different factors. It sounds like so you were already starting out with having some kind of basic, you know, or now we wouldn't even say basic,
1: but definitely had a lot of infrastructure already. Was it how much more did you guys have to build on
5: to be able to start
1: really pulling in even more information?
5: I think initially we didn't have to build out a whole lot of infrastructure. It was trying to utilize infrastructure we already had in place trying to utilize the assets that we already had uh, whether that's connections or integration points because speed was the most important thing over time we have added additional data sources we have added additional data elements or you know data assets that we didn't necessarily have before and so that was kind of the the piece was give us everything you got and do it as quickly as you can and then what we've been trying to do in the meantime is fill those gaps, whether that's a technology piece or a data piece, trying to make it automate the process or automate you know, data flows. And so that's really where we spent the majority of the time after that initial response to try to shore up any of those gaps.
4: Yeah, and I might add, I forgot to say it, Brian, that we got a head start with supplying data to Regan Street, who was doing data visualization even before the state got ready. And we were able to reuse some of that like, what, how are they defining the population that we were reporting on? We were able to get there just a little bit faster, I think, when the state was ready to set up their their visualizations.
1: You know, that's really interesting. You know, so you've already had a lot of this kind of put together, and I, I know that you've had a lot, of, a lot of hospitals already giving you data. Now, did you have to reach out to others that were not already giving you data? Was that was that a large barrier?
4: Well, I'll start, and then I'll let Drew <laughs> chime in, because he, he was involved in more of the outreach. I was more on the side of once they agreed, let's get this data flowing and uh, operationalize it. But um, we certainly have had uh, gaps in the state of Indiana where we don't have hospitals contributing to HIE. We also had another unique scenario where uh, we decided in January, we made it official that the only other HIE that exists in Indiana, we were going to um, consolidate. So the HIE up in South Bend, Indiana, min and IHI had agreed that over the course of this year into early 2021, we were going to consolidate all the hospitals sending in data into one HIE, but we're not there yet. So we kind of got lock, lock stepped in arm with men along this ride to make sure that whatever data IHI was sending along to the state and to Street for data visualizations and modeling, MN was doing the same. And then again, there's that that last bucket of hospitals that weren't contributing to either MN or I, IHI or HIE in general in Indiana. And that took the state doing some outreach and IHA, our, our hospital association, doing some outreach to declare that this a public health emergency, that IHI was an agent acting on behalf of the State Department of Health and others, so that these non-participating hospitals didn't have to get bogged down in legal agreements to join our, our collaborative to send us data. They were kind of, um, our lawyer would say not to use the word compelled, they were asked to contribute. Je- Je- their data. Je-
1: encouraged
4: gently encouraged to contribute data to IHI. And I would say my reaction, then I'll, I'll turn it over to Drew, was that they were very willing to do it. i made sure everybody wanted to make sure that their stakeholders felt comfortable sharing the data, but for the purposes of COVID and restricting it to just registration and lab data, that felt comfortable, that felt like it would be the most helpful to have these hospitals contribute that data. It would be meaningful to send it to IHI, but it wasn't like they were all of a sudden opening the floodgates and sending us all the data they had. It was deliberate. It was targeted, and they were happy to do it. Drew, would you say more?
5: The the piece that I would add is that we really felt a sense of community with those organizations that that really understood the need for this. I think at first there were a few questions, and the questions were mainly around, "Hey, we already send data to the state. What additional data, and why is it needed?" And what we were able to find is that there was an immense value from the state. As it relates to a single source of information flowing in as opposed to multiple data sources in multiple formats the normalization that a health information exchange was able to do was really beneficial and so even data that, that may have been flowing direct from a, a facility they, they saw the state saw the value in sending an aggregated single source of data through the health information exchange to the state, so that they could coordinate all of the efforts, it could flow into a single system. It didn't have to be, you know, managed in, a, you know, transformed or anything like that. That was a, a tremendous value, and I think. Most of those organizations, once they heard that, they understood the reasons why, were certainly willing and able to, to contribute. I think the balance is we're trying to make it as seamless and as easy as we can for those facilities because we understand that the you know, pressures of taking care of patients that they're under, and we're trying to make that system and integration as easy as we can. So we've been able to onboard facilities very quickly and we still have a few more to go but uh i think a single consolidated output to the state is is a really valuable asset that uh, we're all seeing the benefits for
1: now with you guys recently combining with the other health information exchange in indiana i mean i know that process had started earlier in january was there a certain amount of duplication that you had to try to avoid or had a lot of those things Kind of been put in place. And this was just really good timing that you guys joined earlier um, than having to try to do it in the middle of COVID.
4: I'd say, in some ways, it was good timing. In some ways, it could have been better timing because uh, we were already combined as uh, one organization. So we were used to meeting with each other. We had connectivity, we're on the same network, you know, getting together to have conversations and share information was easy, but the bad timing part of it was we haven't combined any of those interfaces yet. We just mm-hmm. are laying the structure to do that. So staying in, in communication and in sync, they are they are definitely, their team in South Bend is sending over the same data that our team in Indianapolis is sending onto the state. So we're not duplicating, but we are uh, trying to make sure that what we're sending matches what they're sending. And that's been our trick. I think I would
5: have, I would have loved for this to be 18 months down the road and I think we would have been, uh, you know, much more prepared and it would have been a little bit easier. I think the, the the thing that you can take out of it is our teams reacted so well and so quickly and we're able to adapt and be flexible that it gives us great confidence that so we can do some some really amazing things in the future.
1: So as far as are you getting data, talking about ventilator data, that kind of stuff, is that stuff coming through to you or are you mostly kind of just doing ADT, you know, the admission discharge transfer feeds as well, registration and lab data?
4: We're mostly doing that. Now, Drew uh, can speak a little bit to these uh, person under investigation forms that we're sending data along as well. But we're not the only resource that the state's using to collect data. They've already got through IHA, um, they've got a tool called EM Resources, where they've got, they're asking the hospitals to directly enter data that they're then using to monitor and track things like ventilator usage and capacity and things like that. And that's not typically the data that comes from our HIE. But I don't know, Drew, is there anything else you want to say about PUI forms?
5: Yes, yeah, so we've been able to support the different agencies as it relates to the person under investigation forms and supplying not only looking at the, the clinical data as it relates to just the ADT and the, the clinical value report, but supporting them with chronic conditions and trying to supply a lot of those kind of questions that are a little bit more difficult to answer as it relates to that person under investigation form. I think the the thing that we've looked at is utilizing the entire asset that is the Indiana Network for Patient Care, the, the IMPC database, and saying, what what problem are you trying to solve? What data do we have? And can we can we solve that? Um, you know, we've looked at long term care and trying to match patient records at long term care facilities and see if those addresses match up to a patient to a facility, you know, that, that we've seen within the state. And so we're able to try to utilize the assets that we have to try to solve some of these problems. It may be, you know, a long term care problem maybe a ventilator problem i think our our desire is just to say hey anything that we've got that we can can assist on tell us the problem and, and we'll try to come up with a solution and i think the the collaboration uh both with the state agencies with free industry that's the part that's been so great is that we're all just kind of rolling up our sleeves and trying to figure out what the problem is and and here's our ability to assist wherever we can
4: Just to add to that, Brian, we are getting requests not just from the State Department of Health and FSSA, but we're getting it from our um, Marion County Health Department um, in local and central Indiana. We're getting uh, requests from hospitals directly to supply them with data to pre-fill forms out that they're being requested to do that are time consuming. And then our EMS partners are asking us for some access and data output. So it kind of just depends who you're talking to and what their problem is, to Drew's point.
1: Now, what do you guys think is kind of your future now, you know, after COVID? I mean, do you think that this COVID crisis is going to change IHI's business? Is it going to expand
5: their, you know, their reach? Or what are you guys hoping uh, that may come out for the future? I'll kind of start off. And, and uh, the, the thing that <clears throat> I've taken away from this is that there have been a lot of different organizations that may not have participated with the health information exchange in the past. I think, see the value um, in contributing data so that others can see it, but also receiving the data. We've had a lot of non-traditional health information exchange customers that have said, hey, we need the data now. We need to uh, be able to support our specific use cases, um, whether that's, you know, dentists or <clears throat> other organiz- non you know, non-traditional provider that we would sense kind of have come out and said, "Hey, we need some of access to that data." I would also say that it has really furthered our relationship with the state, as it you know relates to supporting their uh, ongoing efforts, not just the state department of health, but uh, almost every agency. You know, we're trying to interact with in some way, shape, or form, and and trying to be helpful. And so, I think it's banded us all together to say, "Hey, we've got a big problem. We understand there's a need, and." Everybody doing everything within their power to try to pitch in, I think, has really brought this camaraderie amongst the healthcare sector, the data sector, to try to just pitch in and help. And I think it will further, not that we didn't have a great relationship before, but I think it's only going to get better going, uh, going forward.
1: I think that this is a an event that really shows people the how worthwhile it is to have some more open data, some access to data elsewhere. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think too that this is really going to help um, health information exchange in general.
5: Uh, and I so, we just, in, in, sorry, just one other thing, and, and certainly Becky and and Brian can can pitch in here. But I, I think that the framework that was set up here and the infrastructure that we had it was such a advantageous for our state to be able to be able to hit the ground running that it really further validates all of the work that we have been doing up until this point. And I think a lot of the, you know, state agencies and, and other people within the uh, kind of the healthcare sector now get to see the value. If they questioned it before, I don't know that there's a whole lot of questioning afterwards.
1: Brian, you know, for you, you know, with the Fairbanks School of Public Health and Reagan Street, you know, how have they, how have you guys been using IHI's data, you know, to really further what you you've been wanting to do with public health informatics?
6: Yeah, we've been uh, leveraging the infrastructure available from IHI in two different ways. So the first way that we've really leveraged the infrastructure is to both validate and refine the modeling work that we've been doing. So really important in in epidemics like uh, COVID-19 is to really both kind of understand the problem um with your resource utilization inside the healthcare system so uh, available icu beds available ventilators both understanding that problem and then sort of forecasting where we're going right everyone has been looking at graphs i'm sure of curves uh over the last several weeks and we will be uh, continuing to look at those uh kinds of charts for the next probably six months as we kind of chart the course forward with covid19 and so At the School of Public Health, we've been using epidemiologic uh, modeling methods to forecast what the disease spread looks like. And then out of that population of people who are exposed to and become infected from COVID-19, looking at how many of them would be in hospitals and how many of those people would need critical care and part of that critical care is utilization of ventilators and so we created some models at the beginning of the outbreak towards you know that that first and second week of March to forecast what our spread might look like and what our resource consumption inside of hospitals might look like and then ever since then we've been looking at the data that comes out of the HIE in order to you know validate how well did the model perform we at the we've been advising the state department of health who's looking at two to three different models that's a pretty typical course of action It's for a hospital system or 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 health system to look at two or three of these different models and then you know typically one is optimistic one is pessimistic and then usually your third one's right in the middle because you know there's lots of certainty right but you that gives you some kind of range for you know best case scenario worst case scenarios you can plan for the worst case scenario um, and then if you land right in the middle, then then you're good. And I think that's been the approach taken by most of our health system partners, as well as the State Department of Health. And so with the HIE data, we can see what actual hospitalization rates have been, how many of those people have ended up in the ICU. From the EM resource system that Becky mentioned, we can see ventilator uh, usage of, for COVID patients. And so we can bring the different information together um, and and compare it to these two or three models that state health leaders are looking at, as well as regional health leaders in planning efforts with the hospital systems. And so that's been a, a great tool to be able to validate that. Otherwise, we'd have to go around to each hospital system and get an extract from their EHR and then try to weave all that together, which would be a time- sensitive and wow, well, it would t- be a time sink to try to work with you know 25 to 100 different excel spreadsheets on hospitalization rates Uh, from the different health systems. So having the HIE gives us one place we can go to look at that information and use that to see how these models are performing. Then with additional a priori inputs for this modeling effort, we can refine the models to project what's going to happen next. We know from the observed data, if rates are going up or down, uh, we can then try to forecast for the next couple of weeks what might be happening in the community and use that, give that information to the state health commissioner and uh, county health commissioners so that they can make decisions about, um, you know do they need to move forward with those plans to set up an alternative care site or will they have sort of enough resources available where that activity is not necessary? So that's been very helpful. That's the first set of activities we've been doing, um, which is very kind of a traditional public health use of the data. The second thing that we've done with the data from the HIE is we've been able to use it to populate dashboards that uh, have information about daily hospitalizations, cumulative hospitalizations, demographic information on the populations that are uh, being hospitalized or tested or test positive for COVID, Um, looking at uh, integrating death data from vital record systems along with the data from the hospitals themselves that get sent to the HIE, uh, integrating the data on uh, discharges, uh, ICU, beds uh, rates, um, as well as looking at, for example, comorbidities of individuals who are both tested, who test positive, and who are hospitalized to try to understand patterns. So in, in these kinds of crises, public health departments need information and they need it very quickly. And one approach that that some states have to use is they reach out to their hospitals and they ask them to give them a bunch of data every single day and they may hire people to come in and manually enter data into different systems in order to kind of build that capability of situational awareness on the fly. In our state, we've been able to leverage the HIE to do that information very quickly. So we could quickly stand up a dashboard at the beginning of this that gives us some insight. Over time, we've then added these additional data feeds as the HIE has been able to bring them in and then work with their state partners to integrate and and identify other data that they're interested in looking at and then working with the health systems to provide that information. So you actually start out at the beginning of the epidemic with some information, rather than zero information. And over time, you're able to then add to that, which gives even more clarity to what's happening. And what we've seen is that we have kind of two versions of this dashboard. One that we call, that we might think of as sort of a a private or. you know, environment where people with special access can look at details such as ends of one uh, in some counties in the rural parts of the state. Um, And that allows our public health officials to have detailed information on cases. And then we have a public version of the dashboard which aggregates that information up to answer questions that the media and the public and health system leaders who don't need access to all the details. So maybe they're in the C-suite for example, and they might wanna know what's going on at the community level, but they don't need to drill down into, you know, who is it in this, you know, rural county that that is not in my facility who has this disease. Um, they can get some information as well very quickly. And that's been helpful uh, to answer questions around, you know, what populations and subpopulations are affected by uh, COVID nineteen in this part of the state versus that part of the state, and how many you know hospitalizations are we seeing in this particular county, for example? And that's I think been very helpful as well. Again, we when we start out we have you know, data that's uh, available. We have some data that's available and then over time we can add to that. So for example, a lot of times your death data lags the hospitalizations and so you can quickly visualize with the HIE the hospitalization data and then as that death data begins to be reported and kind of codified by coroners, then you can begin to add that into your data flow. And I think we've seen that that's been the pattern here. I think other states have Try to do similar things for those states who have HIEs, but I think in Indiana it's been very helpful to have that infrastructure in place that we can then build some analytic tools on top of and refine those analytic tools over time as we think of new questions to ask. We identify, for example, tomorrow some new uh, comorbid condition that might be that might put people at risk or some new symptom that we might want to look for. We can then just go into the data and start trying to pull that out rather. Than than having to go and try to collect it and then wait a few days for the data to be collected and then be able to get an answer to our question. And so I think having the capability for interoperability and connectivity between health system partners in advance, like all the time, uh, allows us to respond more quickly uh, to questions that come up during epidemics by public health organizations and health system leaders. I think that's the other piece of this is we often think, you know, a lot of my work is typically with the State Department of Health or county health departments, and they have a lot of questions in these types of situations, and we want to answer those questions for them. But also, we've seen in this crisis, health system leaders really come to the table and have questions. They want to know how this is going to impact you know their operations when can they start doing elective surgeries again Um, what you know, they, they might see, for example, in their own EHR dashboard uh, or system that hospitalizations over the last two days went down for their system. But then I can easily tell them, well, yeah, but you're one of five major health systems and these two other health systems, people are still coming in and getting hospitalized in their system. So it on your side of town, things might be quieting down, but in the community, it's not. And so now is not the time to uh, try to reverse course on these policies. Uh, we may want to wait another week or so before making that kind of decision.
1: Yeah, I have, you know, I have two thoughts on this, and one of them being, you know, the first thing was when you talked about having some of the initial data, I I thought that Indiana has done a really nice job of being open with um, the number of cases, and they've had their, their dashboard has been up and running for quite a while, and like you said, they started adding on to it, and, you know, now we have percentage of ICU beds that are used, what are COVID-related, not COVID-related, same thing with ventilators, um, so I think that there's been a lot of really good information that you can get as just a person in the general public, you can have that And then the other point um, that I think is really, really unique and what I wanted to kind of drill in on with what you said was, you know, there are multiple people that are benefiting from this, you know, from the public health department, from the IHI, from systems leaders. You know, it really seems like, I I think a lot of people are going to see the value. And you had mentioned, you know, in your example, like, hey, you know, you're one of five health organizations, your utilization may be going down. These other two are kind of going up. You know, this kind of comes down to, do you think that some of this data that you guys are collecting, analyzing, doing, is this going to potentially play a role into the state's plan as far as um, lifting restrictions, opening things up, that kind of thing?
6: yes i believe that the data we are collecting will definitely play a role in the governor's decisions around policy in consultation with the state department of health and the state health commissioner so For example, every week I'm taking data out of the HIE and I'm using that, I put that together in a digestible format for the state health commissioner. And I deliver her information about um, a day and a half or so before she turns it over to the governor. So it's an opportunity for her to get the latest information and then for her to consult with her team. And then... Advise the governor on, on next steps, and so obviously in these kinds of situations, you're looking at a number of different indicators. There's the impact on the healthcare system. There's, of course, you know, new case, new cases, and 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 tests coming in, um, as well as uh, you know any type of you know uh, symptom data that we may be able to collect. So, using multiple indicators, some that come from the HIE, some that come from other systems, are are really what they're using to triangulate to make decisions. But the HIE data is a big part of that decision making because there is clearly a concern um, from the beginning of this crisis that our healthcare system would be overwhelmed. And we no one wants to see that happen because uh, for many obvious reasons, patient safety, healthcare worker safety, You know uh, we certainly don't want to have to be rationing care no one wants to make those kinds of decisions and so the data from the HIE I think play a very valuable role in the decisions that are being made and will continue to play that role for some time
1: do you think as far as you know we kind of talk about well public health informatics is getting a big spotlight shown on it because of this crisis I think we we found, you know, from a nationwide standpoint, we probably don't have the infrastructure that's needed. I mean, do you think that we can take, you know, what we're learning here, doing this, applying it forward, building out uh, more public health informatics infrastructure and really advancing ourselves?
6: Yes, I believe that that this crisis presents an opportunity both to um, educate ourselves educate everyone on the value of public health and then two talk about the need for investment in our public health infrastructure so historically the pattern has been in the united states that we underinvest in public health and then a crisis comes along and we put together some kind of, you know, stimulus package or economic sort of relief package for public health so that they can hire people to do contact tracing and, and you know, get ventilators out to hospitals and do kind of the emergency stuff that we need to do. And then when the crisis sub- subsides, we go right back to underinvesting in public health. And so I think this is an opportunity for us to instead say, let's not repeat that. Let's look at the fact that, you know, leading up to this crisis, we had several years of essentially budget cuts to CDC, to state and local health departments, to the, infra- the IT infrastructure in place in, in those organizations. You know, when we had the Health IT Stimulus Act in 2009, the High Tech Act, and we invested billions of dollars into electronic health records, we only invested a few million dollars nationally in public health IT. And what we have seen is that in many states um, where there isn't a robust HIE like we have here in Indiana, it's been very hard for those state health departments to stand up an infrastructure very you know quickly to amass data, analyze it, and and make sense of those data. You know we don't typically have a you know a chief data analytics officer or a a chief public health informatics officer in many places. Some places do have those kinds of roles. Some places have a small team. Some places have some capacity but this is an opportunity to say we really need that kind of capacity everywhere in the United States. Every state has been affected by COVID-19. So there's a real argument to say we need to make long-term investments in the information infrastructure for public health in this country um, to, you know, get it at least on the same page as healthcare. So that's the two arms of our healthcare system can work together to respond to these kinds of crises in the future, as well as support every day, you know, addressing needs of chronic disease and other infectious diseases.
1: So, Becky. What did you notice were some of the biggest obstacles, at least going forward, you know, from scaling this up? And do you think that, you know, if we have an increase in public health informatics funding and awareness in that, I mean, where do you see potentially even obstacles going farther to, to build out your statewide HIE or to, to make a
4: statewide HIE? Well, I think it's tricky. Um, we've We've come so far in Indiana, but I really think having the state government sponsor or be a cheerleader for statewide HIE is probably essential. I mean, I, I think you will potentially always have holdouts, even if you've got a one HIE in your state that's very robust. If you um, don't have the support of the state government, I'm not sure that you're going to get all the hospitals to participate and contribute data to your HIE. And I don't think we're quite there yet with we've had great participation from all the hospitals in the state, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. And like echoing what Drew was saying, when we have just a little bit of hindsight, I'm hoping that the value of what we've been able to accomplish will get us there. But if not, um, you know, that close relationship we're building with our state government could help us get there. So yeah, I don't know if that answered your question entirely, Brian, but I think the obstacles we are potentially going to face is after this is all over. Some of that data flowing to our HIE um, when COVID's done, whenever that is, that's when some of those data feeds stop, or do they? You know, that's the decision point that you make. Do you turn those ADT and lab feeds off flowing to IHI, or do you actually add other feeds so that we can do more with a statewide? collection of data. And I th- like to, to Drew's point, I mean, you don't want to do connectivity with all of those hospitals uh, when you're trying to quickly analyze data and like Brian said, answer questions. But in addition, the data flowing into us is normalized. It's useful. So um, it's stored, you know, securely, but it's also by our, our cl- clinical mapping team, it's normalized so that it can be used as, a, as one source of data for the state. So, and that doesn't happen overnight. Like Drew said, we've been working like it can happen overnight. You know, we've been taking implementations that normally would take a month and trying to turn them around in a few days or maybe even a week. But that involves a lot of people doing a lot of work to make the data useful. So that's always an obstacle is, is just timing and um, willingness to share, I guess.
1: Well, as a resident of Indiana, I do thank you for all <laughs> that work that you've been doing. and And I know that all of us have really benefited from being able to have that normalized data.
4: A lot of people at IHI working very hard, but we know we're sympathetic to also trying to help our hospitals out, uh, something that gives me joy, is that the calls we've been having with some of our hospital partners are that we've been able to provide this data so that nobody's bothering them, (laughs) so they've got other stuff to do. So, and I think they're very appreciative of that and the IHI team as well. And we're just happy to have a way to contribute because uh, the people we normally interact with on a daily basis are our hospital partners and those that send us data. And we are very aware of what they're doing to help the residents of the state. So supporting them like this is great.
1: So one final thought I wanted from uh, you guys, and and before we wrap this up, was, you know, how do we continue this momentum? Obviously, like you said, you know, at some point the pandemic is going to fade down. Our memory somewhat fades at this. Do you guys have any thoughts in your mind of how do we maintain this uh, momentum for public health informatics and HIEs?
6: so i think one thing that will be important to continue the momentum is to uh talk about the successes and the value that hie played in this so it will be important to have sort of both uh testimonials from individuals who benefited from having access to the information as well as you know data to to show how the disease played out in a community and how the community responded to that. So we'll need to develop, I think, some storytelling around the process and the and the role that HIE played, because oftentimes it can be viewed as sort of a you know back office kind of system or something that not a not a lot of people have visibility. And I mean, certainly, I think. For clinicians who log into the HIE or use a system to get data from an HIE, they're very well aware of this value. But sometimes hospital administrators, even public health leaders, others in the community have no idea what HIE is or what role it plays. So I think telling that story will be really important as we move forward to continue the momentum. I also think that that voice will need to be amplified across the states. So organizations like Ah, uh, Sheik, the Strategic Health Information Exchange Collaborative will need to tell those stories as well uh, at a national level, and 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 get that in the ears of people who can make policy decisions about funding and directives and interoperability policy for the country.
1: Becky and and Drew, I mean, any final thoughts from you guys?
6: This is true. I
5: think uh, my biggest piece would be uh, to leverage the infrastructure that we're setting up today. And, you know, Becky mentioned it and Brian mentioned it, but, you know, I think we we can't lose sight of all the work that we've done to stitch together all these different entities, uh, the collaboration that's going on. Now, the, it's not sustainable for us to continue working the pace and the hours and kind of all of the stuff that I think that we've all done over the past, you know, six to eight months or six to eight weeks, excuse me. But I think that it, it will open up avenues to explore those collaboration opportunities in the future. And so, like Becky mentioned, I don't want us to lose sight of those organizations that are sending data to us, you know, in the short term. We want those to continue long term. Uh, we can only see the value if there's other public health emergencies in the future. And so we want to be as prepared as we can. And I think the, the work that we're doing now sets us up to be... Uh, as prepared as we can. We're not going to be able to be prepared for every single outcome that's out there, but I think that we're doing as much as we can to set up the infrastructure to be able to support whatever may come next.
3: Well, I really appreciate you having this uh, conversation with me.
0: All right, welcome back. Um, So Brian, thanks for such a great talk. Uh, Really liked hearing about it, kind of It was interesting to hear about a a different HIE model and structure as compared to what we have here in New York. Um, And I'd be curious to know and hear what you guys have had in terms of interactions with the HIE at your own institution, um, or even with like how the public health department interacts with the HIE um, where you guys are at.
3: So I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm also speaking from the New York perspective where we're like the opt-in approach. And, um, I mean, our, we have HealthX as a, as an HIE, um, we previously, I think had a, had a stronger connection with HealthX. Uh, we did just do, um, an Epic implementation. So our previous system with Allscripts was a little bit more, uh, built up and now we're working on, um, kind of restructuring our, our, um, connection with health X going forward. Um. But, uh, yeah, it definitely seems like, it, you know, it, it lends itself to, um, to keeping up with things in such a more real-time basis, especially for COVID-related issues. Um, I uh, And it kind of reminds me of what the U.S. has as our structure versus other countries that have a, um, a single uh, healthcare system. Um where they can pull from data for, you know, like countries like Sweden, I think, I don't know if it's Sweden or a different country that has their cancer database, and they can pull back from like 30 or 40 years, and it just makes it so much easier to do research when ours is kind of sequestered into different silos, and the same is true for COVID now.
0: Jessica, do they have uh, opt-in or opt-out for the HIE um, where you're at? Um, So
2: our HIE is um, opt-out. Um, And um, it looks like it it started in about 2001, so it's been around, um, uh, I guess, almost 10 years now. Um, And we do it through a program called Clinisync. And so all of the hospitals, um, not all of them, but most of them, 148 hospitals in Ohio um, are providing information. Um, and it covers uh, our 11 and a half million citizens, which is about 92% of the state. So most of the people um, in our state are covered in our health information exchange. Um, I think one of the great things about this is that um, it doesn't matter what institution you're with um, and it doesn't matter what your uh, electronic health record is. It's I mean, it's agnostic and so we're able to get data um, pretty quickly through through everybody. Um, you know, we were one of the first institutions in the city to be um, testing patients with a fairly quick test. Um, And so we were getting tests um, from all over the state um, to process and were able to get them back, get their test results back electronically um, within the same day, um, which was great.
0: Do you think the opt-out model Allows for the better communication, or really, I should say, integration of the HIE into more of that everyday practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would think so because most people have, you know, an electronic record. I would actually say that most patients probably don't know that they can opt out. Um, you have to go to the the we call it OHIP, so Ohio Health Information Exchange Partnership, and fill out a consent form. Um, and so that is, you know, it's it's a lot of work to opt out. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think, you know, most people have their, have their records in there and and it it definitely makes it easier. And then our institution has been using Epic for 20 years. Um, and so we are very heavy users of their care everywhere also. And so the Mm -hmm. major academic institutions in Ohio are also using care everywhere.
0: And do you guys have, um, like, a lot of information accessible through Care Everywhere? I've heard it can be variable depending on, like, states and what institutions, what information they give onto it or share, rather.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, in so I think we have a lot of information available, essentially everything. Um, our CMIO here um, has been around uh, for about 20 years, um, and he has always been of the mind that you know, it should be as easy as possible to share information with, um, with other people. Um, and so we've always been very sharing with our information. Um, and I think that's transpired into a lot of sharing with other institutions. It definitely didn't start out that way. Actually, one of our co-fellows had a presentation at AMIA, uh, not AMIA, at CIC talking about um, health information exchange, because we do a, a pretty high volume of it compared to our peers, according to um, EPIC's quarterly report. Mm. So we just sort of looked at, you know, reasons that that, you know, sort of why that is. Um, and so, you know, it was a high priority for us because a lot of our patients um, go to the other hospitals. Uh, they sort of, you know, don't really pick one. They, they either go to the Cleveland Clinic or University Hospitals across town. And so it's always been important for us to share information um, that wasn't always the case with the other institutions. So we did have some difficulty at first, but you can sort of see if you look at the volume of exchange, you know, when we had things um, like the High Tech Act, uh, where they made it, you know, uh, and the HIPAA, not the HIPAA, what am I thinking? Meaningful Use, um, when mm-hmm. they made Meaningful yeah. Use. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, what is that thing? Um, meaningful <laughs> Use, when it became a requirement, Um you know, to have a certain percentage of, of your information shared, you can definitely see how our how our um, volumes uh, doubled um, or more than doubled with some of the other institutions. And they made it easier too, right? So we started out with opt in um, and, you know, that was just a disaster. And so over the years, we sort of um, transitioned to opt out. Um, mm-hmm. And there are some things that are hard to share still, like psych notes um, are mm-hmm. are difficult to get. Um, and some institutions, if you have a psych note, you can't get any of their chart, which makes, you know, zero oh. sense, but, um, yeah, that's a little, uh,
1: that's a little strange, but it is difficult. And I know that by state by state, it's going to depend on those, t- what are considered sensitive notes and what can be shared. But yeah, it seems a little strange that they just kind of shut the whole thing off if they if there's that's a an note.
2: institutional decision. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, we've, I we've been the, round and round with the lawyers for that one and we uh, keep
1: yeah. losing. So, <laughs> you know, I find it interesting, you know, the idea be, between an opt in and an opt out, you know, uh obviously it comes down to patient privacy and and, sure, and certainly we want to make sure that we protect people's privacy. Um but I I you know, I feel like a lot of my interactions with patients, you know, so often they really say, "Well, it's in the computer." And they don't yeah they don't really understand the, the difficulties between sharing between different institutions and all that. They just kind of see this mm-hmm. as a monolith. And, you know, I have come to really find that the expectation between patients uh, or from patients is that we're able to see everything. And, and then when you say, well, I, I actually can't see those visits that you had from across town, they look at you weird. You know, they're like, well, why not? You know, so I, I, I feel that most, probably most people, um, I, you know, I would guess that over 80%, you know, 90% are probably okay. They would say, yeah, if I went somewhere, I, I want you to be able to see, uh,
2: that note. I want you to be able to see that data. Yeah. Cause well, I mean, it saves them time, right? Like you don't have to repeat mm-hmm. x-rays or CT scans or, um,
1: you or know, try to, to work out, out a the problem. F- the forms and fax them to that other place or, you know, yeah. to the release of information, you know, those. So yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I think it is a, a time saving and there's a certain expectation that they have that they're like, Oh, you should be able to see this. Um, and I still get that now where they're surprised. And, and I haven't found so much that, you know, people are so uh, loyal to one institution uh, to where they were like, well, I, you know, because I'm seen here, I'll, I'd never go anywhere else. It's it really comes down to more convenience. And so, you know, I'll be interested to see what happens in, in the coming years as uh, ONC has talked about information blocking and, and you know, and, and no longer allowing the information blocking. And, uh, you know, I, I think just institutions seem to be very protective of their data. And I, you know, overall, I, I don't know how, you um, how aggressive institutions should be on that, on holding that data to themselves.
0: You know, Gina, I'm kind of curious, like if I'm not mistaken, I believe Columbia is in the process of switching to Epic. If not, you guys already switched. Did you implement it with the, um, it's called what's it called? Epic is it connect anywhere or oh, anywhere connect? Care, Care everywhere. everywhere. Care everywhere, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, thank you. Did you guys are you participating in it or how is that working with uh, the opt-in um, kind of I guess culture if you will of New York State?
3: Yeah, sure. So our uh, the goal live was on February first, so we had a full six weeks before we entered in a pandemic with our. Brand I believe that's VH. ideal
1: yeah. timing. Is that, is that right, Gene? That's yeah, ideal yeah, timing?
3: Absolutely. That's, that's what's recommended.
1: Yeah, definitely. Just get yeah. it, slide it in real quick before the <laughs> pandemic hits. If you have
3: eight weeks, that's too much time. You really want to keep it close to six as possible.
1: Four, four weeks would be too little. Eight weeks too much. Keep it in the sweet spot. Six weeks so, before the pandemic.
3: All of our data warehouses went through a shuffling and uh, it became a bit more difficult to navigate Epic's bumps built system to to find the data that we were looking for um so I, that's uh yeah we navigated it as, as as well as we could have i believe and uh, we had a lot of the, the, our analytics team was working really hard to to um figure out how to get how to be supplying researchers with the data that they need to keep track of everything um that being said uh specifically for the the, the care everywhere um yeah i mean it's it's still a little bit of an issue uh with it being opt-in to um I mean, certainly, if I speak with a patient via a telemedicine visit, and they mention that they've been at a different hospital um, in the, in the city, and all of which are on Epic, um, apart from I think Northwell is still all scripts, and then also uh, is Stony Brook Cerner or Stony
0: Yeah, we're we're Cerner.
3: Gotcha. Um, so if they were at one of those other hospitals, then I would kind of get because you have to get the consent first, and then you have to think upload maybe. Uh, you have to upload a, like a scan. Yeah. Scan copy of the consent before it'll let you access that information. So I haven't done that a, a ton so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the functionality is there. And, uh, I mean, hopefully with, um, you know, we'll, we'll make that more of a priority going forward. I mean, we're doing other forms of interoperability now, um, uh, with trying to get HealthX. um, uh, are, are set up again with Canella uh, with Healthix. and I mean, I was actually curious for the health, the H I E S that you guys use. Do you, do you have it set up via API, or do you have it set up via a single sign on type of setup?
0: We have it as a single sign on. Um, we have like a community view and page tab in our menu, um, and when you open it, it'll show the data that's within. Stony Brook, because we have two or three hospitals within our health system. So, like, if you're at Stony Brook, Southampton, if it's like a transfer, you'll be able to uh, see some information. We're still also, I think, kind of, we only, uh, I guess, uh, had Stony Brook, Southampton join us, I would say, like a year or two ago. Um, and so, we're still having, like, perfecting what data is available in that view because it's the same health system. But if you were at, like, an outside institution, um, we we had it as, like, a real view, and you had to ask for consent and permission. And if you did, it was uh, not always a lot of information. It might just be, like, maybe the discharge summary and, like, some culture results. You didn't have, like, everything that you, you know, would have wanted necessarily. How about you, Brian?
1: Yeah, so in, in Indianapolis here, we uh, so the uh, the community hospital or the county hospital that I work at clinically has a single sign-on uh, function within an Epic uh, to go to iHI, and from there then you can you can navigate through uh, through that and and I think in some degrees you know what people see in that I mean it depends I guess on what the hospitals are sharing so you know so some are. Uh, sharing CCDs, others, many of the hospitals, I believe in Indiana are sharing uh, HL7 version two messages. So, uh, you know, you will see some differences in in the types of notes that you can see uh, from the institution. I know that um, the IHI, you know, basically it's all voluntary, you know, the data remains the hospitals and they can shut off the data feeds at any time. Uh, So they're kind of the HIE is a little bit at the will of what that organization wants to send to them so uh but yeah but access is pretty easy uh within the ehr uh but it does it does direct you to an outside web page
2: oh it it, it does it you go to an outside web page
1: yeah so it'll open up a and uh another browser uh opens up a browser window but, but it is single sign-on so it's not like i you go to it and you have to put in your credentials again so it is linked which is nice and are you epic as well so yeah, we're in the Indianapolis area as a mixture uh, depending on the, which health system. So the, the w- major one of the major health systems is IU Health. Uh, they are a Cerner shop. Uh, the community hospital Eskenazi is a it uses Epic, and then there's other uh, hospitals. So there's a, another community. Uh, it's called Community Health, and they are on Epic. Uh, there's another uh, larger health system that's on. I believe is still Allscripts. So there's a little bit of a a, a hodgepodge of different EHRs, um, which is to me is why it's nice to be able to have the HIE, uh, because in care everywhere, you know I'm not able to easily see all of the information from IU Health uh, or or the other sites. So I I rely on it pretty frequently to see you know which ERs my patients have been going to, um, or you know if they've gotten specialty care um, at another system.
0: So if you guys. You know, from your experiences, your own institutions, and learning about how things can be done elsewhere. If you were to design maybe your own kind of HIE system to connect outside institutions, what do you guys think would be the way you'd like to see it done?
1: I'll let Jessica go first.
2: <laughs> oh geez. Um, I mean, I think we've we've sort of already said that you know um, opt. Opt out is, is important. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the other things that we um, do here in Cleveland is we work closely with the Cuyahoga County. So, you know, um, a lot of most things are actually coordinated here at the county level and not the state level. Um, and so there are a number of people in our county health department who have access to our records, like have a, have an Epic login, um, and you know they're able to use that for data about we think about 50% coverage of patients in the county. Um, so I think making sure that public health officials have, you know, access uh, to the record is important as well. Um, and sort of, sort of tying that in. Uh, I don't know, I think some agreement on, on what goes in, you know, two of our hospitals are on, are on Epic, another one is on uh, Allscripts, I think, and it is it is really difficult. Our, our HIE information actually comes in through our through Clinisync, through uh, Care, Care Everywhere. Um, and so we don't get all of the information. Um, it's, it's not always mapped. So sometimes you have to actually go into Clinisync outside of Epic. Otherwise, it just comes in automatically, which is really nice. Um, so I think, you know, everybody getting on the same page, I think would probably be the other big things, things that are important. Yeah, I, definitely, yeah. I can
0: definitely see how those standards definitely go a long way.
1: Yeah, I would say I would kind of agree with Jessica, you know, as I look at this, and I think about the HIE, you know, I really see the HIE as a way of unifying data. um, And, you know, helping to, to bring in from disparate systems, bringing it together, but then, you know, and helping to really bridge that divide we have right now, uh, that I think COVID really brought up, which was, you know, we have the health systems, and we have the public health departments, and I'm not sure why we've done this, you know, why we've let it go this long and in this way. And we haven't really allowed the two things to talk, Um, but really, you know, it's important, uh, you know, community health and the health systems. I mean, these are all uh, integrated and intertwined. um, And so then to silo that data really, I think um, really hurts us in the end. And and so hopefully, you know, we'll see uh, more funding, Put that way, and and allowing public health to have better access uh, to that data, Um, that's that's my hope.
2: I think too, not just public health, but one of the initiatives that we have from this, as you know, sort of as the county hospital, we have a lot of patients who um, have financial needs, Um, and so we've really ramped up our social determinants of health screening, and we noticed, you know, food need, like food insecurity, has been a big issue during COVID for some of our patients, and so um, we actually are um, in the process of working with local, um, community services to get them access to Epic so that we can do, um, closed loop referrals to places like, um, you know, the department of housing, um, our food bank and some, uh, some of the other community services as well. So not just, you know, actual healthcare, but the other things that can contribute to health as well.
0: That's so great. Definitely those outside components. Um, when I say outside, like outside of the hospital and the doctor's office, absolutely have a huge impact on a patient's overall health and the health of the community. So it's actually a really great use um, of the information exchange. Um, but I know we're kind of getting short on time. And before we go, I'd like to ask to see if you guys have any pro tips for our listeners today. Um I know one thing that I kind of learned kind of accidentally the past few months was that, I don't know if you're doing, you know, PowerPoint presentations, um, which, you know, you may do just to kind of show your department kind of a project or an idea, but you can embed hyperlinks within your PowerPoint that can jump to other slides in your PowerPoint Mm -hmm. or can open files. Uh, And I thought that that was like the most brilliant idea ever because you can kind of streamline your slides and be able to jump back and forth within the powerpoint presentation um and it kind of adds some flavor to uh to your talk
1: that's a nice one i'll go next real quick uh my my pro tip that i found through all this is with especially with workflows i've enjoyed using lucid chart uh, which I know there's a paid version and free version, but for the most part, uh, you know, in uh, what I've always noticed in PowerPoint, it, was, it could be really cumbersome to draw uh, nice workflow diagrams, all that. And so I found in Lucidchart, I know there's, uh, there's some other uh, pieces of software that do it, but I just found that was the fastest way to make different uh, visualizations and uh, and then of course you could download that and in, into a different file and then like put it in the PowerPoint or do something like that. But um, I always know that those visualizations people really liked and were always interested in how I made it. And so yeah, so Lucidchart has been really helpful for me. Totally agree.
3: I could add one. Uh, well, I have like two short ones I could add. Um,
0: the one, one is the merrier.
3: Sure. Well, one Bogo. is my. My, my bookmarks <laughs> toolbar in Chrome is, like, meticulously kept up with all the various resources I have from my own institution as well as others, and, uh, I mean, that's it's just a great way. If you're able to sign into Chrome, which like maybe some institutions prevent you from doing that, It's that's just a really handy way for me to organize everything. Um, in addition, I know that's, like, kind of basic, but uh, I'm just increasingly relying on, Um, And so the other thing I'd mention, though, is if you do have Epic, they have um, this power user training course, which uh, depending on your institutional setup, you may have to request to be able to participate in it. But it's basically, I think there's maybe 10 to 12 one one to two hour courses uh, or sessions that are offered on various aspects of Epic. Like one of them would just be note crafting. I think there's even two sessions on note crafting and then others are just on chart review. And it's uh, a nice resource to kind of increase your efficiency with Epic. Um, And then once you complete eight of them, uh, you can say that you're a power user certified. So it's an additional uh, opportunity for informatics fellows or other people with that level of interest.
2: Um, I guess my pro tip would be, uh, if you're not already using Doximity Dialer, you should sign up for it. Um, You know, working from home, I did a lot of uh, telephone visits lately um, and it was nice to be able to um, sort of mirror the hospital number um, instead of calling patients with a blocked number from my phone. Um, and they recently had an upgrade, um, that allows you to also provide, um, a connection for your staff. So that was a lot of, a, a big problem that we had is that staff, um, were having to work from home, but weren't able to, um, you know, we're having to use their private telephone numbers to call. And so the upgrade allows you to sort of to have people connect to you and then they can use the service as well. So that's
3: yeah, that's great. A- that's an oh, awesome fine. tip. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just, sorry. I was. I, I mean, I use that as well now, so I just wanted to piggyback on it and say that it does have a fax feature as well, uh, which is free. That's really. Yeah, nice. I never
2: so. use the fax feature. It always it keeps expiring on me. I, uh, in fact, I got this yeah, the other day that was like it's going to expire, and I was like, all right, if I need it again, I'll just get a new one.
1: <laughs> I haven't used the fax number, but I may uh, have been calling people from the Indianapolis area code at eight six seven five three zero nine. <laughs> uh, that's that's been my clinic number. Uh so Tommy Tutone is uh is calling patients.
3: Well, Dr. Tommy Tutone. Oh yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Tommy Tutone has been calling patients.
0: Oh man, well thank you so much guys for joining us today. Um and having this talk. Um it's been great hearing from you all, um learning a little bit of how HIEs work at all of our institutions. Um, Thank you again. I hope you guys stay safe,
3: and we look forward to hearing from everyone next time.